0: The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. And I'm reading from the CSB version. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord You should no longer walk, as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about Him and were taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Therefore, putting away lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. Let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by Him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. But sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard of among you. As is proper for saints, obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore, it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise making the most of the time because the days are evil. So, so don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is and don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another, In the fear of Christ this is the word of the Lord amen please be seated so this week clearly you can hear from Paul's writing we've shifted gears we've changed direction significantly Um, our NIV kind of misses this but chapter 4 verse 1 begins with a therefore which many other translations have right at the front niv buries it a little bit with the then that comes as a prisoner of the lord then i urge you that's the therefore greek word that's usually at the start so we're changing direction paul in the last three chapters has spent time getting us to reflect on the wonder of the gospel on the beauty of Jesus and all that God has done for us in him. And if you haven't been here, we're kind of week four into a series on uh, the book of Ephesians uh, called um, Live the Life. And we've been engaging with this idea of what it means for us to live as faithful people of God, faithful followers of Jesus today. And so in the last three sessions, we've looked at all the things that Paul is telling this church about the wonder of who they are in Christ. Now we're kind of moving in a different direction of looking at the implications of the gospel in how we're meant to live. So if you like, uh, Warren Weasby helpfully says we've moved from doctrine to duty. Or from looking at um, riches in Christ, our inheritance Christ, to now talking about our responsibilities in Christ. Or to use uh, Dr. Kevin Hovey's language, we've moved from wow to ow. Or Ouch. And so it it has fallen on me to be bad cop. We had three weeks of good cop. This week, it's bad cop. I mean, I'm joking, but it is. And you'll see that, I, I hope you heard, the content of this part of Ephesians is challenging. It hits us square in the eyes. But it's important for us to not ignore the hard parts. And read 1 to 3 and remind us how blessed we are in Christ. Because Paul always does that in every one of his letters. He does doctrine, telling you who you are in Christ. And then always unpacks it and says, now this is how you're supposed to live in light of that. So put your seatbelt on. It's going to be a bumpy ride today. But a key phrase in Ephesians 4 and and 5 in in these passages that again the NIV doesn't capture fully but other translations do is the word walk. It appears time and time again and you'll see all the references there 4 1 4 17 5 2 5 8 5 15 often the niv translated is as live some other translations use the word behave but it's the greek word walk and i think it's a really good way to think about it. so my message is entitled walk the walk walk the walk that's really what paul is getting at in this whole section he's saying be who you are live out who you are in christ as the people of God. That's essentially a nutshell of all of these chapters, these two chapters, these verses we looked at. So what I'm hoping to do, because it's a big chunk here, is to kind of do some high level stuff and kind of cover very quickly some of the big ideas and themes that Paul is covering here that links back to chapters one to three, and then drill down into kind of four of the many ethical issues that Paul addresses here, which I think are particularly relevant for us today. And then, Look at how the gospel can really steal our hearts as we wrestle with the challenges of what Paul is saying here. Okay, so the first thing uh, is that Paul makes really, really clear here that we have a new identity. And he puts it right in the middle of everything he's saying. In chapter uh, 5 and verse 1, he says, "...follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children." And that's referring to chapters 1 to 3. He's kind of just doing shorthand here. He said, remember everything I've told you? I'm just reminding you of that again. We have a new identity. And he does this again in 5.8. You were once darkness, but now you are light. Notice what he says. Not you shine like light, but you are light. It's a change of identity. It's, It's something fundamentally different that has happened to us because we're in Christ. The old life has gone, uh, summarizing uh, chapters 1 to 3 really quickly, you know, Paul says we've been redeemed, we've been forgiven, we've been set free, we've been, uh, we're new creations, we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, we've been filled with the Holy Spirit, we have received God's love, we've been chosen, we've been called, all of those things is what he's referring to when he says, you're new, you're a new person, you've changed citizenship as he uses in other places, that language. So his point is if you're if you're a new person why are you still trying to live like the old person paul's big point in chapter 2 is this idea that when we were under sin and under the control of satan we were spiritually dead but now we've been resurrected we've been made alive so why live like dead people anymore It reminds me of what Jesus said when He raised Lazarus from the dead, and you'll remember this in John 11, and Lazarus, He calls Lazarus out. Lazarus has been dead four days, brings him out of the tomb. He's resurrected. He's alive. And the first instruction Jesus gives is to remove His grave clothes, right? Because He's not dead anymore. He's alive. So why keep wearing grave clothes? And in Warren Weasby's commentary, he says, When Christians wear grave clothes after they've been resurrected, it just doesn't make sense. That's really what Paul is trying to get at here, all right? So we have a new identity. The second point in all of this flows out of that. So we are supposed to live differently. That's his point. Because we're not dead. We're not rotting corpses. We're not ignorant of God. We're not alienated from God. We're not separated from God. We've been brought near through Christ. We are now the people of God. We are the much loved children of God. We are people of light. So that's supposed to change the way we live. I mean, look at the way he, he says it in this passage. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In other words, live a life that honors the name of Jesus. You must no longer live... As the Gentiles, or like you're spiritually dead, like the old man, the old life, in the futility of their thinking. You're not supposed to live that way. Walk in the way of love, chapter 5, 2. Live as children of life, chapter 5, verse 8. All of that to say, live like you are. And let me be clear. You know, Paul doesn't cover every single moral and ethical issue that we will ever face. But the language he uses and the way he described it, describes how we're supposed to live, is kind of this holistic overhaul of our lives so to be clear Jesus didn't come to bring moral reform to your life just to make you a better person let's be clear about that he came to completely change your life so putting it this way hopefully you'll remember this Jesus didn't come to do an extension to your already amazing home or some internal renovation to make it nicer and more comfortable or build a granny flat up the, up the back no he didn't come to do any of that he came to knock down and rebuild. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's how Paul is calling us to live. And as you'll see, you know, he talks about our words. He talks about our attitudes. He talks about our relationships within church. He talks about how we're to use our gifts. He talks about our sexual conduct. uh, He talks about how to manage our anger. He talks about a whole bunch of specific things. But all of that to say that when Jesus brings you alive, and you are now the people of God, every part of your life is meant to be different. And so sometimes, you know, I talk to Christians who've been Christians for a long, long time, and they say, oh, you know, yeah, that's this thing that's kind of on the side here that, you know, is in my life. You know, Jesus has done all this other stuff, but, you know, it's like, knock down, rebuild. It's kind of like what Paul says in Romans 12:1 when he says, present your bodies. He means every part of your life. Really what Paul is saying is we're supposed to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength. Every part of That's Jesus' call. Even in the Old Testament, remember when God rescued the people of uh, Israel from Egypt? He gave them a whole bunch of laws. Now, if you've ever read Leviticus, I encourage you to, or Numbers, there are commands and laws about every part of their life. What they wore, what they ate, their sexual conduct, how they worked, how they was to do finances and debt, how they were to govern. Every part of their life, God says, now that you're my people, this is how you're supposed to live. Not like the nations around you. It's always been God's way to knock down and rebuild at a fundamental level to give us a new identity and a new life. So we had to live differently. Third point. We have a responsibility now again this is an interesting one to tackle because you know we want to talk all about grace 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 but even in ephesians 2 8 to 10 the power grace verse there's work Th- there's work right because grace not only forgives and heals and god's mercy comes, but grace also empowers us to live a life that honors jesus it's it's both and look at the way paul does it in this in this in these sections the number of Here's the things you're supposed to do, verses. I urge you to live a life worthy. Well, we're supposed to do that, to live a life worthy. And then here's the context of grace that you have received. It's both. You know, our work flows out of the context of God's grace and the work of the Spirit in, in our hearts. But it's still a work, a responsibility that we're supposed to have. And all of these Greek words are command language, where Paul is commanding these Christians that this is what they're supposed to do. Make every effort. That sounds like a lot of work. It is. Each part does its work. 4.16, 4.22, you put off your old self, and here's the grace part, to be made new. That's passive language. That's something that God has done for us, to be made new in the attitudes of your mind. 4.24, he does the same thing. You put on the new self, but you have been created to be like God. Grace. Four thirty-one. You get rid of five eight. You live as children of light. Five fifteen. You be very careful how you live. We have a response. I mean, I don't know if you struggle with this, but I kind of went, God, you know, wouldn't that have been great if when I became a Christian, you just flicked a switch and I didn't have to do anything, my sanctification just kind of happened? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, it would. But but that's not the Bible. The Bible says that God gives us his spirit. In our prayer meeting, we talked a lot about the indwelling spirit. In, in Romans 8, it's a classic passage where it says, by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh. It, it's both and. And so we have a responsibility. So the last big point is so we, we have to be careful how we live. We have to be careful, not careless And Paul does this by warning these Christians about the dangers of continuing to live carelessly. I mean, he tells us early on in the passage that these Gentiles that he's talking about, verse 17 of chapter 4, you must no longer live as Gentiles. And he then lists a whole bunch of things. He says, in the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God, etc., etc. And then he says that the wrath of God comes on those people who are disobedient, because they're outside of the kingdom, they, they don't have the revelation of the gospel in their hearts, they're darkened, and the, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, will come on unbelievers. And then in four, uh, chapter 4 verse 30, he talks about not grieving the Holy Spirit, now that's written to us, to Christians, to these Ephesians, because he's saying that if we continue to behave in the old way, then we will grieve the holy spirit the same holy spirit that's in us the same holy spirit by which we've been sealed for the day of redemption the same holy spirit who is a person that can be grieved and then when we come to chapter 5 the warning intensifies verse 5 of chapter 5 he says for this you can be sure no immoral impure or greedy person such a person is an idolater what does he mean there he says if we as christians again he's right into the ephesians in that section right He's not writing about the Gentiles out there. He's saying, really what he's saying is, if we as God's people continue to live like Gentiles, then we are going to experience what the Gentiles experience because maybe we're not really the people of God. For this, you can be sure. This is a guaranteed language. No immoral, impure, or greedy person has, such a person is an idolater, that's a Gentile, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let, and here's another warning, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. What does he have in mind? He's having in mind Romans 6, I think it is, where there were some people in the Roman church that were telling these Christians, you know, we're all under grace. We're all under grace, 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 you know, holiness, righteousness. You know, it's okay. If you sin and keep on sinning, God, God's grace will abound to you more and more. I think Paul is saying, yeah, hold on a second. Don't, don't be deceived by that kind of stuff because that's not true. Don't be deceived with empty words, for because of such things, what does he mean? The things he's just mentioned. God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. That word disobedient, he will use again in verse 12 of chapter 5, and he's used previously in chapter 2, verse 2, to mean those people who are separated from God. The disobedient. Verse 7 is his concluding thought. It starts with a therefore. He says, Therefore, do not be partners with them, or partakers, or participants, or don't engage in the stuff that they are engaging with, because you too will experience the condemnation of God. And then he brings it all into focus as the warning continues. He reminds them again of their identity. For you were once darkness. That's who you were. But Now you are light in the Lord, and here's his call, here's his challenge. Therefore, live as children of light. So we've covered all of that. You have a new identity, you have a new life, you have a responsibility, and here's the warning part, and he makes it clear. He says, for the fruit of the light consists of certain things, goodness, righteousness, and truth. So if there's anyone telling you that those things don't matter, then they're trying to deceive you because that's not the gospel. The alternative verse 10 and find out what pleases the Lord verse 11 another warning have nothing to do nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness but rather expose them. Verse 12 he's saying it is even shameful to even talk about again the keyword what the disobedient do in secret. So he wraps it up verse 15 So be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Live carefully, circumspectly, wisely in the light. So with all of that in mind, let's dig into some specific things that Paul mentions here. And you'll notice, unlike Colossians, where Paul lists a whole bunch of vices, and then lists a whole bunch of virtues. He does something a little bit different. He touches on a lot of the same stuff you can compare. uh, Ephesians and Colossians are often read together as sister letters. But here, what Paul does is he talks about a vice and then says, not like this, but like this. That's the old, this is the new. You used to live like this, now live like this. An example that's really, really clear is when he talks about stealing. Verse 28, he says, anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer. So that's the, don't do that anymore, but must work doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. So it's not just stop doing the negative, but embrace the new. Put off the old and not be naked, but put on the new. And so that's what he does throughout this passage. We're going to look at, you ready? Four things. Firstly, words. Words. Okay. Joanna, you want to? So these are all the things that he puts in there. and I've kind of fleshed out the English interpretation of the Greek words, that you get a sense of what Paul is talking about. So clearly he says, put off falsehood and lies, verse 25. Unwholesome talk, that means kind of obscene and vulgar language. Brawling, in the Greek, means actually shouting. Aggressive words. Slander is words that harm someone's reputation. Malice is speech that defames their character uh, or it's characterized by harshness, wrath, anger, clamor. Uh, Those are the kind of English words that describe what malice is. Obscenity, foul language, foolish talk, mindless and stupid conversation. This is interesting. Coarse joking. Oh, Hang on, go back. Coarse joking, vulgar expressions and indecent content. That's what that means those are all the words that paul uses in ephesians for um, in those verses instead paul says this is what our speech ought to be characterized by speak the truth in love 415 425 speak words that are helpful encouraging and beneficial words speak words that are full of kindness and compassion and gracious words and thanksgiving i don't even know where to begin to talk about this but let me have a crack When Micah, particularly, was younger and he was in high school, he would meet different people at school who would profess to be Christians, but they would swear all the time. And he would come home and go, "Mom, Dad, what's what's going on here?" I thought, you know, as Christians, we're not supposed to swear. And so we'd have conversations about that. And he would, anyway, it would happen time and time again. And he he to, to shorten that conversation, he came up with a phrase. He calls them effing Christians right? Not using the swear word, but just like that. And so even today, like he goes, oh, dad, and I met this guy at work and he's saying he's a Christian, but he's an effing Christian. I go, okay, I know exactly what you mean. And we've been just talking about this conversation for many, many years. Is it okay for Christians to swear? Is there ever a context where it's okay for Christians to swear? The thing thing that Paul doesn't do is give us a list of words to avoid. Wouldn't that be great? Don't say this, don't say that, don't say the other. He just gives us categories of the kinds of words that Christians should have no part in. And, you know, uh, and that's not really helpful. Because people ask me that question. Can a Christian say X word? You know, asterisk, (laughs) app symbol, hashtag, you know, swear word. Uh, and, and I think, you know, for instance, give you an example. Micah played us a video clip of a preacher preaching and they used the F word. I'm like, what? Wow. But it's it's not as rare as you think. Mark Driscoll, that some of you have heard of, that got into a whole bunch of trouble. His church grew radically because he was known as the cussing preacher. Because in in his city, I think it was... Portland, Oregon, or no, Seattle. He, he came to the conclusion that his context meant that he could relate to people better if he was more authentic and more real that way. And lots of people, in, when they share their story, said that that was one of the things that made them kind of keep coming back to church because they're like, wow, this guy's not pretending like a preacher to be holier than thou. Or, he's, he's like one of us. Interesting to think about that. See, I'm not here to give you any answers. I'm here to give you biblical principles for you to think and pray with the Holy Spirit's leading and make decisions. So here's some things for you to think about when you think about, should I be saying this word? Is it okay? Well, James chapter three, James talks a lot about the tongue, right? You know this passage, but he says, look, how can filth and purity come out of the same mouth? Essentially is what he's saying. How can we glorify God and curse a brother or a sister? So that's one thing to keep in mind. How can pure water, I think he says, and, and salt water or something, you know, come out, of or, or a fig tree, bear olives, or a grapevine? And basically he's saying, how can the same mouth profess praise to God and profanity? Okay, that's a question for you to answer. Colossians 4.6, instead, again, Paul in the sister letter says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. That's the Christian alternative seasoned with grace. And then the other thing to keep in mind is in Matthew 12, where Jesus warned his followers to say, you know what, every careless word that comes out of your mouth, you'll be held accountable for. So within those biblical parameters, here's a question for you to think about and reflect on, if you have wrestled and struggled with this one. Do my words reflect my new identity in Christ? Simple as that. Do my words reflect my new identity in Christ. And I'm not just talking about swearing, like, because you saw the list. It's truth-telling. It's slander. It's shouting. It's aggressive words. It's maligning people's reputation. It's, it's all of those things. I'll, I've just focused on one aspect to help you think about a biblical principle of how to approach this. Okay? Are we okay? Bad cop. Okay, second one. Second one. Um, Anger. Anger. I can feel the people. Okay, so Paul says, as a Christian, these things have no part in us, right? No bitterness, rage, anger. Now interestingly, uh, let me point something to you, which I didn't notice till I was preparing this message. Everyone goes to verse 26, 426, in your anger do not sin. And they go, yeah, well, there you go. That's my loophole, right? I can be angry and not sin. What Paul has in mind there is not the kind of anger that 99% of us experience for 99% of our day-to-day lives. It is the kind of righteous anger that represents the holiness of God in a situation. That's what he has in mind there. So kind of like Jesus in the temple. Think Jesus in the temple. That's the only time Paul is saying you can be angry and it's not sinful. How do I know that? Well, this is the bit that I missed. Go down a few verses to verse 31. And look at this, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. And notice what's not there, any qualification. So anger is something that we are to get rid of. There's never a justification for saying my righteous, my anger is righteous. Because often if we're truthful, our our anger is selfish. It's when we don't get our way, vis-a-vis, when somebody cuts us off on the road. That's not righteous anger. That's selfish anger. Or when our uh, spouse doesn't do what we want them to do. Or when our kids are mucking up and throwing a tantrum. That's not righteous anger. And Paul says, get rid of it. And so the alternative is deal with it quickly. And again, can I just, this one verse has created so much trouble, particularly for married couples. Because it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Can I just say, Paul didn't mean literally, okay? If you have a, a, a Barney at 9 o'clock at night, and it's an intense one, don't stay up till 2 in the morning trying to work it out because the Bible says, you know, deal with it before the The sun's already gone down anyway. And it's amazing how much perspective will come when you just take a moment bring your heart to God and say, God, I'm so mad because I know they're the problem. But if, if, if there's even just 1% of sin in my heart, will you show me? It's amazing the 99% God shows you. And it's amazing the perspective you have the next day. You know, scientifically, they've proven that nighttime is the worst time for humans. There are certain chemicals in our body that just run out, which is why most of our worst decisions have been made at night. And the Bible talks a lot about the stupid things that we do when it's dark. So the Bible, (laughs) the scientists backing up what the Bible, so can I just say, all that Paul is saying is deal with it quickly. Don't let it fester, because if it gets to the other stuff, bitterness, rage, that's when we're giving the devil an opportunity to bring division, to bring discord, to bring unforgiveness, and those are the things that will bind us instead oh sorry uh, don't give the devil don't sin through holding on to unforgiveness don't let your anger fester into bitterness or malice invent through sinful actions or words that's what paul is getting at instead this is look at this list this is how we're supposed to conduct ourselves humility gentleness patience tolerance kindness compassion forgiveness love they're all there ephesians 4 and 5. That's the alternative to anger. Pretty tough list. So here's the question for you to reflect on. Do my responses, my attitudes, my actions, my words, when I'm angry, reflect my new identity in Christ? Which list do I reflect more? There was a woman who was talking, uh, can you put up that picture please? Do you know what that is? It's the results from a shotgun blast. And so this woman who was trying to justify her anger, and she was telling her friend, you know, I just explode and then it's all over. And he goes, yeah, like a shotgun, but look at the damage it leaves behind in the people you love. You can put in a grenade, a hurricane, and you might say, well, it's just me. I'm a fiery, whatever the cultural background you might justify with, Italian, Sri Lankan, whatever. That's who we are. That's our personality. That's just how God created me. But, you know, it's, it's over in a moment. Your anger might be over in a moment, but the consequences and the damage, just, just think about this for a moment. How many of you still recall the hurtful words and actions of an angry parent, teacher, coach, leader from years ago that still mark you to today? It's there, right? And yet we think, It's okay for us to have an angry outburst as long as we get over it quickly and we move on and we make friends with everyone. It's all right, we're all good. But Paul says, no, it's not all good. That's not how we're supposed to live. We're different. We're the people of God. Okay, take a breath. (laughs) Breathe it out, breathe it out. Just give you a moment to just rest. Give me a moment to rest. It's It's just, we're just getting started two to go. Okay, let's do this one. Sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Okay. So the Greek word for sexual immorality in the Bible is pornea. And that means any kind of sexual activity outside of marriage, pretty much. It's like Paul saying, don't play sport. And somebody's saying, well, what about tennis? What about football? Cricket? Don't play sport. That's the prohibition. Don't participate. And the reason he says this, and this is what's interesting if you go through this passage, the things that he focuses on particularly are relevant to them because these characterize a Gentile life. Sex was part of their worship. When they went to church, they had sex. And so Paul's like, we're not those people anymore. We, we can't live that." Now, that's, we don't live in a pagan world today. But in our society, it's, my goodness, so sexualized. Pornography is accessible so privately, cheaply, freely, anonymously, it's, we're living in a crazy sexualized world. I think Paul's teaching is so relevant for us to think about and reflect on. So it means any sexual activity outside of marriage. Impurity, anything that's immoral, dirty, impure, or sexual misconduct. He, he uses two words that kind of corrals pretty much everything that you can think of. And it was interesting when I know in my, when I was a youth pastor, and even years after that, I would go and do relationship seminars um, at um, Regent's Park Christian School, I did it for about 10 years. And invariably, you know, we'd have a Q&A session after I did a whole session on, on sex. The, the, I'd get questions like, is it okay for a Christian to have oral sex? Is it okay for a Christian to have intercourse but just not ejaculate? Is it? I'm like, are you... St- like what part of oral sex makes you think that it's not sex? It's in the name. And I was having this interesting conversation, you know, with Micah. We have some really interesting conversations about faith and Christianity and, and he said that I've discovered that it's really many Christians who make that loophole. That want to carve out certain behaviors that are okay, but he said non-christians they know you're either you're having sex or you're not having sex there's, there's only two realities there's no shades of gray And i thought wow that you're probably right you know i think our culture has a higher view of sexual sex than maybe we do because we want to carve out things and say that's not sex somehow but see god gave us sex as a gift And God created our bodies to enjoy and delight in sex. But he gave clear boundaries because he said that anything outside of that will destroy you. And we're going to do a whole session about sex and the theology of it in a few weeks' time. So I won't talk a lot about that. Other than to say, this is something that's important. And again, to think about where is the line that I don't have to cross, maybe is the wrong way to think about it. And so I want to share with you 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul kind of gives the alternative. He doesn't do it here, but in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul gives the Christian ideal. He says this, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, which means holy, be set apart, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body. So this is self-control in a way that is holy and honorable. Notice the repeated word. Not in passionate lust like the pagans, all life, all man, who do not know God, ignorance, Paul talks about that here. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish judgment, all who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. Who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians, not to the people out there. He's warning them again. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Holy, holy, holy. God's ideal is our holiness and our purity. And if that is your aim and that is the inclination of your heart and that is how you're trying to live, you won't ever have to worry about where the line is because you're not even looking at it. Okay? Last one we're going, ooh, alcohol, I told you i pick all the big ones. This is a really interesting one, Our, our church culture has changed radically on this topic. When I was getting married, in our church, even to toast with champagne was considered a sin. Now I get alcohol for Christmas from people in my church. crazy stuff. I'm not going to name any names. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, I think we've changed a lot. So, let's, let's try and think through this biblically. Uh, we, we all know, right, that the Bible denounces and condemns drunkenness everywhere. Right? And in the Old Testament, where it specifically doesn't, it does it in a narrative way to show the consequences of drunkenness as a way of teaching by example. Don't do this because you see what happens when you do do this. Uh, one example um, is 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says this. I'll come back to that other slide, Jana, but this one. Uh, do you not know that wrongdoers generally will not inherit the kingdom of God? Same kind of stuff that we've been talking about, right? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, to so all of the same stuff that we've looked at. Idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, thieves, greedy, drunkards, or slanderers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, holy, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So alcohol in the New Testament particularly is associated with the, or drunkenness, sorry. Drunkenness is associated with the old life. It's associated with the night. It's associated with darkness. It's associated with idolatry. It's associated with reckless, wild, the English word, old English, carousing, wild living, reckless living, careless living, right? That's what it's associated with time and time and time again. But the thing that Paul never gives is to tell you how many drinks you can have before you get to that point. Again, thanks, Paul, but not helpful. Not helpful at all. And over the years in my pastoral ministry, I've talked to so many people. Going, they say things like, "Hillary, you don't understand. I can handle my alcohol. I can drink two cases of beer and still walk in a straight line. I'm good for you," but that's probably not a good thing. Or somebody else who just opening the bottle of wine and they're under the table. You know, like. So it's like, how do? How, how do you make sense of that so Paul doesn't give us that kind of detail but what he does give us is helpful because again look at the instead that he gives us verse 18 do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery while living carousing instead be filled with the spirit now that's an interesting instead I would have expected something instead be self-controlled, instead be sober, right? But instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Huh. So let me propose something to you. In Australia, I believe not just in New South Wales, the legal limit where you can drink and drive is 0.05. Blood alcohol, correct? Why is that? I believe, from what I've read, that it is because beyond that, our government is not convinced that you are fully in control of your faculties, correct? Somehow the alcohol has affected and impaired your judgement, your response speed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it really doesn't matter whether the uncorking of a wine bottle or your two cases of beer are any factor, or your body mass, or how your body processes, I've heard everything. If the government says, we we don't care about any of that, you get in a car above that and you are a risk to yourself and to other people on the road. Now, here's the Christian question. At what point would you say that the Holy Spirit no longer has control of your faculties? Did that hurt? It hurt me. If you ever need to get somebody else to drive your car for you, is the Holy Spirit in full control of you, of every part of you? Keeping in mind that one of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is actually self-control. If you're not in control of yourself, then what does that mean? Just putting it out there. For you to think about for you to talk to the holy spirit about because you know what it says that when we don't live like god's people we grieve him so he'll sort it out with you what that looks like but he's so here's the question that for you to oh did i do the question from the last one i think I, I don't know. at what point is uh, uh, am i relying on no first one at what point is alcohol impairing the spirit's control over me doesn't matter how you handle it. Doesn't matter how much you can drink. Doesn't matter if you can do the American drink driving test. None of that matters. This is what really matters, because Paul says, "Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit." At what point has that changed? The second question that kind of, re- am I really going relying on alcohol instead of the Holy Spirit to give you courage, to make you funny, to get you to do karaoke, <laughs> to calm you down at the end of a hard day? to comfort you when you're miserable? Are you, what are you relying on? Is it the Holy Spirit or is it some other spirit? Here's a good test. When has alcohol started to affect you? And I wanna suggest you ask someone else because they can see it before you can. I don't know how many weddings I've been at where I know somebody's had too much to drink and they're convinced that there's nothing different about them. (laughs) And I go, really? Wow. Maybe asks, and you might not know it. But when, at at that point, even though you might not think you're drunk, I want to suggest, because Paul puts those things side by side, that if the Holy Spirit is not at the very center of your heart, that moment, perhaps you've gone too far. So maybe we need to rethink our freedom with alcohol in the church today. Maybe we need to make different decisions so that we can honour God. Okay, are we okay? Okay, that was the easy part. Here's the hard part, some objections. No, I mean, it's all hard because God's Word, when it shines a light, it's like okay so three objections firstly we need to relate to the world so we can win the world right? I've, I've heard that according to ephesians 4 and 5 that's nonsense therefore do not be partners with them all right? um, and paul says verse 11 5 11 have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness god has not called us to live in the shadows and point people to the light he's called us to be the light that's what Paul says big difference big difference so I, I want to say to you that when Paul talks about and people normally quote to me oh but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9 you know, I became all things to all people to the Jew like a Jew that's not what Paul means he does he's not saying sin so that people can be saved you know and we do crazy things with God's word but God's called us to be light in a dark world and point people to the light not to be in the shadows and embrace darkness so that we can say oh, look I'm in the darkness with you but let's go to the light together no. the second objection is that you know as long as we don't step over the line whatever that line is with drinking sex words anger we're okay but again Paul won't let us because he says extreme things that, you know, have, have nothing, verse 3 of chapter 5, among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. He's saying it's the wrong, way, the, the wrong way to live as a Christian. It's not telling yourself, how ungodly can I be and still be in the kingdom? Paul would say, how foolish. How dead can I be and still be alive in Christ? Paul says, that's nonsense, but it's living with the glory of Jesus ever before you, captivated by His radiance and beauty and His salvation and the gospel and the new life you have in Him. That's how we're supposed to live as Christians, not looking for the line so we can carve out things that are exclusions that we can somehow participate in and indulge in, because the things that God forbids, they're there because they will destroy you. And Paul says, you know that you used to live that life. Why, as the, in Proverbs, would a dog want to go back to its vomit? And the last one, we'll never be perfect. Come on, Hillary, You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We're all broken people. We're all on a journey. It's true. Sanctification is a lifelong journey. But sanctification is never an excuse for sin. Because the same gospel that saves you, Paul says in Titus, empowers you to live a godly life. If you've got a gospel that you're relying on for forgiveness, but for not empowering to live a Christian life, you've only got half of the gospel. And Paul would say according to Galatians, that's not the true gospel. But you don't know me. You don't know what I struggle with. You don't, that's just who I am. That's not who you are that's who you used to be so live like you are a child of God loved chosen forgiven redeemed restored resurrected alive in Jesus I'm finishing I want to finish with hope because you're probably all feeling so like whoa that was intense And again, just one other thought, you know, uh, people have said to me, oh, but Hillary, I've worked these things out according to my convictions. But my question is, well, are your convictions shaped by our culture or by the Bible? Because we can be convicted about all kinds of things and be wrong because of the benchmark that we're setting ourselves to. So I don't want to leave you with condemnation and shame and... Guilt and all of that. There's there's hope in the gospel. And that's why Paul, right in the middle of chapter one, uh, chapter five, verses five or one, sorry, four thirty two, and five one and two, puts the gospel right in the middle. He says, "Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children of God. Walk in the ways of love, just as Christ loved us." and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And maybe you've messed up in some of these areas. I know I have, big time. If you, if you want to find out my deep, dark secrets and skeletons, I'll tell you because it's a testimony of God's grace. But I, I don't know anyone that has not wrestled with these things because we live in this world, right? Anger, careless words, hurtful words, sexual immoral. And the hope of the gospel is that no matter how far we've drifted, God's love never fails to reach us. It's always there. And He will continually bring us back to Himself and draw you by His love and grace. So if you've struggled, if you've been carrying shame and guilt and condemnation, I, I hope that you can bring those things to Jesus today and say, Father, I need your forgiveness, your atoning sacrifice, your love and compassion, your mercy to cleanse and purify and restore me. But God's love also empowers us to live for him. And he gives us means of grace. And Paul tells us some of these means of grace. He talks about the truth of Jesus in, in chapter 421. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him according with the truth that is in, we have the word of God. We don't have to stumble around blindly and aimlessly. We know how God is calling us to live and we have God's word to instruct us and shine the light into our hearts and to illuminate us so that we can live God's way. Paul talks a lot about the power of community throughout this section. Right at the start, he talks about how we're to treat one another. Then right in the middle, he talks about how each of us have a gift to bring, to edify and build up one another so that together we might grow in maturity. We might encourage one another, support one another as ligaments so that the body can grow stronger together. That's why community is so important. If you're not in a connect group, join a connect group where there's accountability and transparency and iron sharpening iron and we can encourage and challenge one another. When we're going through a hard time and we mess up and we blow it there's other brothers and sisters say hey you're loved and i'm going to pray for you and we'll, we'll trust that by god's grace you can work through this community and then lastly he gives us the holy spirit and paul says here that's that's what we're supposed to do be continually filled present continuous tense with the spirit so that we can speak to one another with different words songs of the spirit that we have mutual Music in our hearts to deal with all the sinful angers that we're giving thanks to God with gratitude for everything the Father has given us. Be continually filled with the Spirit, the gospel, the truth that that God loves us, that His forgiveness is always available to us, the Word of God, the truth that points us in the right direction, the community of loving discipleship, mutual accountability, and the power of the Holy Spirit. Why don't you bow your heads? And that is probably one of the longest messages I've preached. No, it's probably not true. And just take a moment. Andrew, can you jump up just on the keys, wherever you are? Thanks. I've talked a lot. Just allow the Holy Spirit to whisper into your heart. And you know, as we've been doing the last few weeks and we want to continually do, we want to give opportunity for prayer and for response. And I know after a sermon like this, there's no one here in their right mind that would want to respond. But I also know that there are people here who need to respond. And whether that's because you're feeling convicted and you just need to bring that before Jesus and surrender to His love and His Lordship, or whether that's because right now you're under some heavy spiritual attack of condemnation and shame and guilt, and none of those things are the Holy Spirit, and you need prayer, or whether it's you're saying, God, <laughs> this holiness thing, this living the new life thing, this putting off the old and putting on the new thing is so hard, I don't know if I can do it, and you just saying, God, I need your Holy Spirit, I need to be filled again, the Holy Spirit. Maybe that's you. And we want to pray because, you know, as we come, as we leave our seats and come forward and have people gather around us and pray for one another, something spiritual happens. And so I want to give you a moment just to allow the Holy Spirit to prompt you, to nudge you, to speak to you.